Well, hello, everybody, and welcome back to the All Saints podcast. I have a wonderful guest with me today, the distinct pleasure of welcoming uh, an old friend of mine, James B. John, uh, who is a biblical scholar, uh, a former financial guru, is that right? Um, not really. Inve- <laughs> not really. <laughs> I can't remember what it was that you said you did way back in the past, but it was something in, something to do with banking, but now far more saliently and uh, importantly for us today, um, uh, James is a biblical scholar. I guess I would describe you as an independent researcher, uh, doing a PhD in biblical studies and a bunch of other things. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, the scriptures. We're going to talk about some particular theological issues that I've been really struck by James's uh, ability to see with clarity and insight. And uh, James sees things in the Bible that I've not found many or even any other people calling to my attention. And so it's been wonderful getting to know him. In fact, we go back quite a long way, don't we, James? It's good to see you today. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, we do. Now, when was it? Was it 10? Has it been 10 years or something? I think it must I... have been about. Uh, it, it, was a, it was this weird scenario when I was running a theology course and you enrolled as a student, which is kind yeah. of hilarious. Well, yeah, I, I mean... Um, my... My errors remain my own responsibility, of course, but the, the rest, yeah. the, 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 the good stuff I learned from you. So that was fantastic. Well, I'll t- I, mean, I tell you what happened because it, cause this, this gives, um, uh, if, if my memory is correct, this, this uh, is the, the personal introduction that always sticks in my mind when I think of James B. John. So I was teaching this um, really systematic theology course doing with some students on Zoom and some students in person. And if I remember rightly, you were doing a, a master's degree at King's College London in biblical studies. Is that, was that what you were doing? Yeah, you're doing possibly. a master's I did something somewhere like in that. London. PG Dip, I think I did that or something. Right, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. And and but it didn't have much of a theology, um, a, a systematic theology element. And and so you thought, oh, how can I throw in some systematic theology to my um, studies? And so you you trundled up to North London and sat in the shed in the in the back of my garden with a handful of other people talking about Calvin's Institutes for a couple of hours I, a week. And I we did, did that yeah. for a couple of years, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Yeah, I think great. I made it. Well, listen, it's once. wonderful to have. I think I made it all the way through your course, which was a kind of three or four year cycle or something. I think it was by the end. Yeah, it was about mm. three years. I think by the time you finished okay. it, and and I've had oh dozens of students who did parts of it, but not many who who, who manfully struggled all the way through. So I think you're yeah. one of the, the blessed few, the, the, right. the courageous few. So listen, um, tell us a little bit about yourself. I mean, I mentioned um, you, you had a bit of a background in finance, and then you moved out of that into something uh, which I, I take it is closer to your heart and closer to where you think you're calling it. So tell us a little bit about all that stuff. Yeah, so I, I did start in, in finance. I, um, I actually began working for the Bank of England after a while. I had a kind of background in maths and Largely for reasons of ill health, actually, I began to work there only two or three days a week. So I, I moved to part-time um, work there. And then, thankfully, mercifully, my health improved. And I then felt able to kind of do some courses and things um, in my days off. And, yeah, one thing led to another, I, I suppose. I did, um, as you say, I did a, a theology course. And then I think I did a um, Hebrew and Jewish studies course and hmm. i got connected to some great folk up at tindale house in cambridge right. and i did a year's work experience with them at some point mm-hmm. and they liked they would have liked me to stay on um but they don't employ people without phds in something biblical there and so i said right. well i'll go back to the bank of england but they said well we could help you out funding a phd so I said, great. Right. And, and the rest is, um, it, well, it's not quite history. I'm still midway through that PhD. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's right. where I am. But um, Tinnah House is a great and place. And so, and so um, talk to us about that in, in, uh, in formal terms. What's the subject of your PhD studies? Uh, it is the semantic content of different biblical names and their parallels in other name pools around the ancient near east um which sounds in in the service of which you've had to learn how many ancient near eastern languages well well i mean (laughs) if 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 learning is able to communicate um you know functionally in them then almost none um (laughs) but I, i i have kind of picked up uh yeah dribs and drabs of of a few but they're all semitic and so 
right, kind right, of once right. you know one, you, you can yeah you can pick up another. Yeah. Um, uh, especially if you've uh, only got to read them. Listeners and viewers to the podcast will very quickly deter, discern that James Beaton is extremely humble. Um, uh, he's the kind of guy who would go to the British Museum and be able to read the cuneiform tablets without translation being provided um, by the little tags in front of the display cases. Um, yeah. Have you ever stood in front of the Rosetta Stone and sort of read it out to the assembled tourists, or is that just a party trip too far for you? No, never, and and I, I couldn't either. <laughs> 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 yeah, well, um, but I know, yeah, but I'm I not sure I believe you, but anyway. I know people who can. Um, there are some right, very, right, very yeah. good readers of ancient languages at, at Tinder House. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a great place. So, and so your, your, your PhD studies, like a lot of theology PhDs, have taken you very, very deep into one very narrow area of biblical studies. But the thing that um, has always... Um, made me admire you and and this even and perhaps especially when you know i was teaching quote unquote this theology course with you, with you as one of my students which is like a laugh laughable thought um um it's made, made me admire you was the breadth and depth of your interest in the scriptures as a whole and i we lost touch for a year or two i guess since i moved out here to the us and that and we got in touch by email just providentially and so I went back and started looking at your Substack page and your academia papers. And there I found just dozens and dozens and dozens of articles about all kinds of um, different um, details of uh, scriptural teaching. It, I, I don't know, how would you summarize your broader interests in um, reading the Bible with that kind of care? What, what, what is it you're trying to do, James? Um, how would I summarise it? I'm not sure. I mean, hopefully, attention to detail and attention mm -hmm. to details which often aren't picked up. So the kind of right. things that I've put on Substack or um, Academia or wherever, um, yeah. they're not kind of, um, they're not the way I would preach any of those passages. Right. <laughs> if right. I was right. giving an right. address on Ezra, I wouldn't start digging into clan names and translations of them and number counts and all, all the rest of them. Yeah. So they're hopefully to supplement um, the main sense and the main practical import of a passage um, and to show how some of the details contribute to that. And mm. I guess what I love is when attention to detail like that um, doesn't give you some new way of reading a passage right. as if you wouldn't get there unless you plowed into all these kind of slightly obscure features of the passage but um a way in which that can reinforce and perhaps even slightly nuance a plain sense of a passage so right. something right. that anyone could get reading any passage in translation um but just kind of adding some extra um yeah, insight yeah. to it I, I love the image of scripture as being like a picture where um, uh, if you imagine like on the, the wall of an, an art gallery, a massive 10 by eight foot canvas or something. And as you stand back and you think, yeah, I can see this is a picture of um, the English countryside or of, of a canyon in, in somewhere in um, uh, Midwest, um, North America or something. But then you zoom in and you see those tiny little details and they don't, turn the picture of the English countryside into a picture of the Alps. But what right. they do do is they bring more uh, color and depth and texture to the picture that you could already see that it was a picture of. Is that, is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And um, something we touched on like before we started recording here is mm. that the Bible is a book which I feel at least can sustain that kind of study. Now, mm, if you try yeah. to subject my writings to that kind of scrutiny, it would soon right, right. fall apart. I haven't written things that I've written with all that intricacy in mind. But, right, I mean, right. if we think of the kind of world that God has created, you will know this yeah. better than me. Things that you can study at a molecular level um, <laughs> will... <laughs> Aren't you, aren't don't you, start you're... comparing PhDs, okay? We're not going there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but, you know, yeah, we'll have a huge import and the interconnectedness of 
God's creation, we can barely even begin to yeah, yeah. fathom, you know, and get our yeah. heads around. And as we've developed more sophisticated ways of studying the natural world, more and more of these things have come to light. And yes. why wouldn't scripture have that kind of um, detail and complexity to it? And why, yeah, yeah, when yeah. we hear about claims like that, would we have this kind of gut reaction to shrug them off and, and to think, well, that's a bit fanciful, you know, surely yes. the Bible wouldn't have that complexity, but yeah, may, maybe it does. Maybe you know? it does. So, yeah. so I, I, I want to give just one brief example of this. And I think this is probably one that we may even have talked about before. Um, and I certainly heard about this was not one that I discovered. I, I can't remember it's who pointed this out to me. So let me give this example and let's circle back to that underlying theological point that you're making about mm. the character of scripture and the character of God. Um, I can't remember who it was who pointed out to me that in Psalm 23, you've got basically a, a twofold structure. Well, there, there are lots of different ways of structuring Psalm 23. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and so on. Um, and basically what you've got is you've got two uh, panels, each of which is 26 words long. Oh. And in the middle of them is the phrase, for you are with me. Wow. And I didn't know that. 26. I mean, you, didn't you know it? Well, no. I said, did I just teach Joe's beans on something about the Bible? So um, talk to us about the significance of the number 26. I mean, this is something that you have uh, drawn attention to in the past. Um, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a number that relates to the numerical values of the name of God himself, right? It is, yes. Um, so in when you start talking about numerical values of hmm. words in Hebrews, it sounds a little bit mystic um yes, but yes yeah just as you could write i don't know the number 16 as xvi is that right in roman numerals yeah um, that's right so yeah. you can write things in in uh so given letters in hebrew represent um given yeah. numbers and this isn't a particularly unusual thing I, I have a hebrew bible over there and all the chapter headings for instance will just be written in numerals rather than uh right, sorry, right, will right. be written with hebrew letters rather than just having yes. the numbers like one two a b c d e rather than one two three four five exactly yeah. yep and then kind of once you get to the uh 10th letter that can be 10 and then the 11th letter can be 20 and so you can start kind of mm. uh building things up like that right, so you can have kind of almost like a decimal system but not quite yeah 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 um yeah. and so the name yahweh has the um the gematrial value we can call it of 26 and right. they then turn out to be all sorts of remarkable properties of 26 it turns yeah. out in unexpected places and um uh certain words tend to appear 26 times in certain passages and texts right. and so on and right. yeah it's just remarkable yeah well and it's interesting because I, I i i framed the way i asked the question once you said you hadn't uh i, I, did, I didn't want to uh, give you the answer, so to speak. I wanted to see what would happen when somebody who uh, uh, was familiar with Hebrew uh, numerology and very familiar with the Hebrew language, if I if I pointed out the twenty six feature of Psalm twenty three, if you'd not seen it before, what would you say? And of course, you imme you immediately saw what any astute reader of ancient Hebrew would have seen back in the day. And what isn't apparent to us and it, it's just a wonderful example i think of exactly what you're talking about anybody who reads psalm 23 can see it as a, a picture of the lord being there for us the lord caring for us um the lord watching over us and protecting us as our shepherd and our provider and our king because shepherd is like a king but then when yeah. you see that that beautiful and subtle numerical feature of the the poem what you've got is a picture of the Lord is on both sides of us and right at the heart of what we need to know is you are with me. Mm, and it, it, right. it communicates something to, to ask what extra does it communicate is a little bit like saying, what do some of Shakespeare's sonnets tell us about love that we didn't know before, isn't it? It's, it's, right. yeah. It, yep. it, it, poetry communicates to us in deep ways, which are, not reducible to mere propositions, right? Yes, and which we may not be entirely conscious of in the right. same way in which 
a film or a piece of music might communicate all sorts of things to me by the way it introduces a theme, recapitulates that theme with perhaps different chords in the background or something. And I may not be aware of those technicalities, but just as a listener, they will have an impact on me. They will kind of shape me almost whether I want them to or not. Um, I I think it's an interesting thing that whenever you hear a recapitulated theme in a piece of music, you have various expectations um, that you're probably not thinking of consciously. Um, Right. Right. So, and, and this, I think strikes me as one of the challenges of preaching scripture, because on the one hand, I'm conscious that some of the details that I'm uh, dimly spotting through the haze of my somewhat rusty Hebrew and Greek, um, they are significant in that kind of way. And I, I would love it to be the case that the members of the congregation here at All Saints pick them up subconsciously in the kind of way that that even somebody who's not musically trained might pick up repeated themes in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony or something. Right, absolutely, yeah. But yeah. but the problem is the problem is I I know they're not going to because some of them are so subtle that they're not even evident in the English text. And so I end up I find myself wanting to explain them. And I want wonder or worry sometimes whether the explanation reduces something that was designed to function at a more visceral and emotional level, it reduces that to something more purely cognitive. Is, is that a, a fear you'd have in um, preaching in a way that calls attention to these things? Or do you, do you think there's a way around that in, in preaching and teaching to try and bring the visceral force of these texts home to people? It strikes me as a valid fear to have. Um, it, it's not one that I've actually thought about um counteracting i guess so yeah i'm not sure i immediately have much of um hmm. much of, of, of you do, should say there do you do well, much what? preaching and teaching in your own congregation small amounts yeah yeah, yeah i do yeah, small yeah. amounts we we tend to most of our preaching is is done in an open kind of participatory format and so i will be used to giving quite short addresses maybe 15 minutes or something right. um but you know, if you're disciplined and you don't have long introductions and you know what you want to say, you can actually get a lot said in 15 minutes. And, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a good thing yeah. to do, I think. Yes, yes, yes. And, and, and it, it brings us back to the, the underlying theological point that I'd love just to explore a bit more deeply. And then I want to get in, into one particular theological area, which I know is something that's close to my heart and, and, and close to yours that you've written on recently. But this underlying issue that you alluded to before, um, if we were to interrogate our own writings with this kind of detailed scrutiny, we wouldn't find anything there. The texts that we write and the texts that most writers write do not stand up to um, the kind of detailed scrutiny that you are giving and that I and many preachers and pastors are trying to give to the scriptures. Yeah. The scriptures have this kind of super fine grained texture, which continues to yield theological richness and pastoral insight, however far down you zoom in. Mm. Yeah. So what does that tell us about, does it tell us anything about God himself or about the character of scripture? Uh, anything that, does it, what does it reveal theologically that the scriptures have that character to them? Yeah, I mean, surely at one level it just tells us about the inexhaustible nature of God's character and Mm -hmm. the way in which, I don't know the best way of expressing it, but the way in which we can plunge in any amount of detail into what God has done and and not exhaust, not plumb the depths of it. We, We could be kind of learning at an ever increasing rate and still have infinite amounts left to learn. So surely there's that, but at the same time, there's surely the sense in which God is just an incredible communicator. If you think of something like a parable, a child can understand it. There's, I mean, like, uh, um, it's got a simple surface level meaning. And yet at the same time, it can unfold into incredible riches which 
enhance and complement that surface level yeah. meaning. And yeah. how you manage that is is beyond me. I seem to have this ability to multiply words endlessly and say less and less with them. And yet yeah. scripture seems to yeah. have this ability to, via an incredibly small mm. number of words, pack in yes. infinite riches. Yeah, well, that's certainly true. Like in, in some of the narrative portions of scripture and, and poetry as well, you find this, don't you, that, that it communicates with such precision and power and clarity when it's only a few words long. Like look at something like the, the, um, uh, the narrative of the Tower of Babel and think how, how unbelievably foundationally theologically significant that is for understanding the character of um, human, fallen human aspirations and, and the way that human community can be so right and yet so wrong and how God acts in judgment against um, such communities and the, the theme of gathering and scattering and how it connects to the promise of to Abraham in Genesis 12. There's so much detail. And then you look at the, it's a chiastic structure within that little section. And, uh, but it's 11 verses or something, isn't it? I mean, or right. 10 verses long. It's, it's, it's like, how could, yeah, you, you, there is something wondrous there about the, the terseness of scripture. It makes it feel to me like poetry, not in the respect of like poetry rather than history, but the best poems the, the people have ever written are often quite short. Like Shakespeare's sonnets would be an example, or some of George Herbert's poems, which is some mm. that I know a little bit. Um, I don't know much poetry. Um, yeah, packing yep. so much in. Is, is, is there a deeper issue there where we, so we are used to saying scripture reflects God's character in what it says in its content. Is there something here where we say scripture reflects God's character and his attributes by its form as well? The in connection with the point you're just making i guess there, there must be at some at some level i mean if you to take your example of the tower of babel um there is incredible richness in that text itself but of course yeah it gains a lot of its richness by the way in which it compares with other passages in scripture mm -hmm. we can zoom forward let's say to daniel 4 and find another tall structure um, erected in Babylon or Daniel 3, better still, um, where people gather towards and where a herald cries out, you know, people, nation, yeah, tongues yeah. and languages, you know, and then in the next chapter, we can see the, a, a similar tall structure um, filled and the beasts scattered away from it right. and so forth. And right, right. Um, at one level, those are incredible literary um, connections which are being made mm -hmm. at the same time they are historical features yes. they are accounts that have been made up those are accurate descriptions of mm. the world which god has created so it's not like we're writing lord of the rings or something and so we've, right. we're, we're we're, we of... get to invent languages and invent things and, yeah exactly yeah. yeah so this is an accurate retelling of what god has done in history and so right. we we kind of see god as just this like creative genius to put yes. to put it mildly i mean it seems almost in insulting to yeah. <laughs> use that that language of god um but he but, has but, but it's not is it if, if you think of the thing that he's created is the creation right, right. I mean, he is he is the ultimate storyteller uh, it yeah. just turns out that the story he's telling is the story of history, and he's weaving together uh, all these typological pictures and uh, both super detailed narratives of tiny little incidents, you know, a um, uh, woman with a jug of oil that doesn't run dry, or um, old guy talking to young Moabite in the corner of a barley field, or um, uh, uh, childless second wife crying in the sanctuary because she hasn't got a child. All these tiny little things narrated in such detail. And then you've got this huge sweep of the whole of human history as well. And the yeah. connections between different parts of it. Um, yeah, yeah. It, if, it feels to me like m minimally what you're talking, you, 
just by reflecting on those attributes of scripture, it tells us something about God's sovereignty, um, uh, about the beauty of God, about God's con God must be concerned for aesthetic perfection. Right. To have, um, you know, even the lists in scripture yeah. are, are rich literary compositions. Yeah. Um, God is not concerned to, God doesn't, the scriptures are not like an evangelistic tract in the sense that they try, try to strip out detail they regard as extraneous. They, yeah. they portray truth simply, but then in this kind of, it's almost like a fractal structure, isn't it? Where the more you zoom in, you never run out of salient detail. Right. I mean, God has had to be sovereign over history, so the historical right. events, over yeah. the minds and creative thinking of the people who have recorded mm. them in Scripture, over the preservation of those words which have been recorded and the formation of the language in which they happen to have been recorded in. And you can go on and on and on, and it becomes utterly mind-blowing after a while and right, right. um which kind of it forms a bit of a nice segue into what we want to think about doesn't it because yeah, yeah, yeah. we want to talk about as i understand it the doctrine of penal substitution coming coming back to that and yeah, yeah, yeah. we both think um unless you've had a radical change of thought since you wrote your book um we both think <laughs> <laughs> good that that is a doctrine <laughs> that that is a doctrine that can be sustained by um a careful and responsible reading of say mm. of romans or the book of mm. galatians so why do we want to look at the gospels and try to piece together things that yeah, the gospel yeah, the yeah. shape of the gospels tell us about penal substitution yeah. um why bother well, with that in the first place yeah. Well, let me let me sketch some background to that, and then you mm. answer that question by okay. perhaps, if you will, by just talking through some of the work that you've done. So, just a reminder for folks listening: the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement is the the biblical teaching that God gave Himself in Christ, His Son, to suffer instead of us the punishment due to us for our sins. So, substitution instead of us, penal having to do with punishment, and atonement—that is to say, turning aside God's wrath. Uh, that was justly directed at us for our sin. Uh, and that wrath was experienced by Christ in our place. So penal substitutionary atonement. And normally when somebody is trying to defend this claim biblically, they might go to some of the more obvious proof texts. And you're right in the book that um, uh, I wrote with a couple of friends a number of years ago, uh, we did do that. We were, actually went to some of the gospel narratives as well, but the obvious places to go would be Romans three or Galatians three or, uh, uh, first Peter and, uh, or Exodus and Leviticus and so on and try and uh, show either through direct biblical statement um, or uh, through some fairly obvious typologies like the Passover lamb or the uh, day of atonement ritual in Leviticus that this idea of a, a perfect one being sacrificed for the sins of his people to turn aside God's wrath is just foundational, foundational to the Bible. Now, what that then raises sometimes is um, criticisms that come from those who are less inclined to take seriously the unity and integrity of the whole of Scripture. And so that then places them in a position where they'll, they might sort of sideline the Old Testament stuff, reread Paul and slightly dismiss Peter, and then lay down the challenge, okay, where is this doctrine taught in the Gospels? Like, if this was such a big deal, if it were the case that God gave himself in the person of his son to suffer instead of us, uh, the punishment due for our sins and to exhaust his wrath personally in that way, you'd expect it to be a feature of the four accounts of his life, right? And death and resurrection, the Gospels. So where is it? And as I mentioned, that we, we sketch some of this in Mark and John, but uh, you've gone beyond anything that we attempted uh, most recently in, in John's gospel. So I'd love to hear you just talk me and our listeners through some of the, the ways in which the details of John's gospel call attention to this aspect of biblical teaching. Yeah, sure. Be, be happy to, and obviously interrupt and, and add 
insight and or correction as, as, as we go. I'm but, um, every moment I don't understand, which could be quite frequently. Yeah, I, 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 I doubt it. But um, yeah, you go ahead. Well, I mean, what, what I have tried to do in perhaps the particular article that you're talking about is show yeah. the way in which different components of the doctrine of penal substitution are kind of baked into, layered into the narrative of John's gospel. And it's it's meant to be a kind of cumulative case. So initially I start talking about the way in which Jesus's death is substitutionary. He dies kind of rather than his disciples dying. And you could say at the end of that, well, so what? Is it just 12 guys, you know, and we can talk about that a bit. And then if we've answered that, we could say, well, so what, where's the penal aspect of that? That's just one guy getting caught by the Romans rather than some other guys getting caught by the, the, the Romans. And so we can then go on to look at the penal aspects of that. And, and so that's the the intended structure of it. Um, it. It's meant to be this cumulative case. So um, let me um, actually get a Bible, things we've talked um about it a fair bit. Um, <laughs> That's the book we're talking about. I've got mine in front of me here. Good. So um, <laughs> you, you go right ahead, otherwise um, I'm, uh, I'm going to yeah. see stuff that you just have to do by memory. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I wish. But um, so, I mean, one of the things I was struck by for just picking up in Chapter 18, so John's mm. passion um, narrative, we have uh, Jesus here um, approaching um, a garden or going to um, a garden and... As the soldiers approach Jesus to take him away, um, Jesus, it says in verse four, knowing all that would happen to him, um, came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who get this little aside, Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. And when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so Jesus asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. And we then get this comment. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me. I have lost none. So it just struck me as interesting that at the very start of John's crucifixion account john's passion um narrative we have men coming to men from rome coming to arrest jesus led by uh judas led by his betrayer and jesus at this point is conscious he he's in verse four knowing all that would happen so Mm, he's making a decision of what to do he could walk through the crowds as he often does when they're gonna Yeah, exactly. Um, So he could disappear from the scene, if you like. Um, Jesus' disciples would presumably then be um, taken and possibly crucified themselves. You know, Mm -hmm. later on in this very passage, Peter is going to deny um, Jesus. While while Jesus says, I am, uh, Peter is going to say, I am not. Um, which is quite a striking contrast, but he he's going to deny Jesus, presumably fearful that he will be killed if he admits who yes. he is. So Jesus here is saying, take me and let these men go. So right. surely like we have here... For the... <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So surely we have here that notion of substitution. I am yeah. going to be yeah. taken rather than them. Um, now, right, right. as I was saying at that point, you could say, well, so what, you know, um, yeah. if just one guy chooses to get captured, chooses to get captured rather than another, that's no big deal. Um, right, right. but these 12 guys just aren't any old 12 people, aren't right. they? you know, no. um, uh, yeah. at various 12 points, for 12 for a start. Yeah. So at various points in history, um, mm-hmm. so when the folk return from exile for instance they are headed up by 12 individuals in um where is that ezra Mm. 2 and that is a kind of new phase of israel's existence which is begun by god selecting 
12 yeah. individuals. Yes. Now, Jesus has chosen to select 12 individuals here for a, a reason. And I, I, I do think that um, one of the criticisms of penal substitution as a doctrine is that it focuses too much on Jesus's death as if it's a kind of mechanical thing without saying a great deal of Jesus' life. And that's a slightly strange um, accusation, I, I think. And yeah, I think even in just looking here um, yeah. at this passage, we can easily start to kind of deconstruct some of that accusation because, okay, here is Jesus and he's getting arrested in place of his disciples. Now, what has to happen in order for that to take place? Well, if Jesus was a guy who went along with the mainstream Pharisaic position of the day, this opposition wouldn't exist. You know, if Jesus was rather than a carpenter who became a rabbi and attracted 12 followers, if he was instead, let's say, a butcher who lived in Jerusalem and never did much controversial, then this incident wouldn't happen. And so kind of, this is an incident which has some theological import, but also has a historical backdrop. And so we can start yes, kind yes. of piecing and stitching together mm. the life Jesus lived and the fact that he chose 12 disciples and that he said back in John 6, of those whom the Father have, has given me, I will lose none. We can immediately mm. stitch all that together with some an event surrounding Jesus's crucifixion and with yes. a theological construct around that. Yeah. So that's the kind of yeah, a start of the thing, I guess. And, it, and it's, just, it's interesting because even here, even before we get to later in the gospel where you've got um, the actual death and resurrection of Jesus, there are allusions here to um, sacrifice and temple uh, cultic uh environments so for example well for a start it's a garden i mean that's supposed to remind you of something um the garden of eden the tabernacle in the temple uh courts uh constructed or the the inner parts of both constructed to, to resemble a garden a place where men and god meet i'm mm. struck by john 18 2 um judas who betrayed him also knew the place for jesus often met mm. there with his disciples the place is a phrase used in Deuteronomy a number of times to describe the place where um, sacrifice will be offered, the tabernacle when it's constructed. Mm. Um, and then you've also got this um, uh, weird mention in verse 18 of a charcoal fire in the mm. courtyard of the high priest. Well, yep. there we are, courtyard, priest, charcoal fire. So so where, where Jesus is going upon being uh, uh, having offered himself as a substitute for his 12, the renewed Israel, he then goes to a courtyard of a high priest and stands by a charcoal fire. Right. Well, that's right. exactly uh, like, it's like a kind of para parodic image of um, temple sacrifice, right? So it, right. It, all and these he, he, themes bound, seem to me to point in the same direction. He's bound, right. by yes. the way, at, at, at that point, yeah. you know, um, bound like a, yeah. a sacrifice. And so we have, as yeah. Jesus arrives in, Jerusalem, the kind of, mm. you know, the Hosanna call um, from the psalm, which right. continues, bind up the sacrifice, you the, know. The, and, yeah, the festival, festival offering, yeah. Yeah, and, and what strikes me as interesting here, so if we think about that um, courtyard, and um, so you mentioned verse 18, so just rewinding yeah. a few to verse 15, so mm. Jesus has been taken away. Simon Peter followed Jesus, it says, so did another disciple. And since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple who was known to the high priest went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept kept watch, interesting phrase there, at the door yeah. and brought Peter in. So what, why do we care about that? That seems yes. a fairly tedious detail to recall. But we're immediately getting this idea that here is not just any courtyard, but a courtyard of restricted access that yes, not yes. any guy can wander into, but you have to have some sort of priestly connection. And so mm. what we're 
sort of pick up on there, hopefully, is a detail that we might think, why does that need to to be there? Um, yes. And we're trying to kind of uh, interrogate that a little more. Yeah, and it, and it's fascinating because it, it highlights another uh, aspect of Scripture's richness where you have what some scholars call uh, type scenes, which is, I, I guess, picking up on the idea of typology, where you have repeated um, themes either represented in people or actions or events, but you can have um, like a scene that has a particular character to it. A boy meets girl at well, starts talking about marriage, or um, a, a woman has two children and the younger one inherits, or um, uh, you, you go to a mountain and there you meet with God. Um, and here you've got a more, a more complex type scene. It, it evokes exactly those resonances from elsewhere in scripture of a, a priestly courtyard containing a fire to which access is restricted by a woman. Right. Yep. I mean, that's, yep. that's, there, there were women who served at the entrance of the tent of meeting, uh, back in the days of, um, the, the later judges period and, and, uh, the early monarchy. So yep. it's, yep. it's, it's highlighting all these uh, resonances, which we're presuming. And one of the wonderful things about this is you can see these more easily than perhaps we can see some of the super fine details of Hebrew uh, and Greek uh, detail. We can see these in English translation, right? If we yep. look carefully. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 And yeah. of course, layered on top of this image then of uh, sacrifice, we are going to get this whole yeah. legal aspect of the thing um which of course well, so is take us be through important. that because that's how the the gospel the narrative develops in the interview with Pilate, right yeah sure um so again this is one of these um remarkable things i guess where we we have got a credible historical scenario here um the yes. jews want to have jesus crucified um they don't want to do them to do it themselves um because he's a right. popular figure so and they, they probably couldn't get... couldn't impose that kind of penalty right there was a roman distinction sure. roman penalty yeah hence the whole kind of um uh back and forth between Pilate and the jews so right, they take right. him to Pilate um and, and say please would you crucify this fellow for us um he smells a rat and doesn't really want to get involved kind of thing and and so he then starts questioning jesus and as a result what has initially begun surround with Jesus surrounded by a sacrificial imagery um, mm. turns into Jesus literally in a law court. Um, and right. so um, I guess I mentioned that because um, this is the penal aspect of penal substitution. Right. Isn't it? Yes. So you've got both temple for sacrifice and cleansing and mm. law court for judgment and condemnation and acquittal. Yes. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. So talk and, us through that. Okay. So, I mean, one of the phrases um, which I was zooming in and interested in is, so chapter um, 19 here, um, Jesus has been um, brought out before um, the, is it the Jews here or is it the crowds at large? I think it's just the Jews outside Pilate's headquarters. And Pilate is trying to um, let Jesus go. Um, and mm. re remarkably, we have this um, repeated statement of his, verse 4, um, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know I, have I find no guilt in him. So yes, we can have yes. an incredible scenario uh, developing here. Jesus is going to be um, tried as, and, and killed, in fact, as a lawbreaker. He's going to die a lawbreaker's death. And yet with the kind of words of the Roman law keepers ringing out, I guess, I hmm. find no guilt in him. I mean, what, yeah. what a, a, a remarkably <laughs> theologically rich yes. um, scenario. Um, and let me just condemn a man who is not guilty and let me say it twice because two witnesses, right? Right, e e exactly, yeah. yeah. And um, kind of incredible when you think about it that, again, this depends upon the historical details now not just of mm. jesus's life but of the overlords who happened to be in charge of jerusalem at the time yes the nature of the governance structure etc etc so kind of we, we've spoken about the detail of the text of scripture but the detail of history of course has to 
fit it, you know, and we mm. have yes. um, evidence of Pilate in charge of Jerusalem at, at the time. Sort of thing. Yeah, These are right. I, I, mean, I, I recall even that somewhere some archaeologists dug up the stone pavement. Is that right? Am I misremembering that? Or did they actually dig up the, the, the actual I'm the not stone sure that... structure on which... There's something called the pilot stone. Um, I, I'm, I don't know right, if it's a right. pavement or not, but it, it has pilot's name literally on it, yeah, sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but so, and right. the Jews make this remarkable statement in verse seven. The Jews answered him, um, yeah. "We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God." And I wanted to kind of try to. Um, unpack the various um senses in which we can understand that now yes. throughout john we have all sorts of things that can be understood in multiple senses we have a yeah. woman asking jesus for some water um, which jesus yeah. takes in <laughs> a, 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 an additional dimension let, let's say um and we have the jews and Pilate saying all sorts of things with layers of meaning they could never have imagined but here we have them saying yeah. we have the yeah. law According to that law, he ought to die. Now, at one sense, um, the Jews did have a law. They had a, um, a mosaic law enshrined in all sorts of tradition, which Jesus deliberately butted up against, if you like. Jesus mm. healed people in ways in which he shouldn't, kind of by uh, making a clay paste, technical... for instance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, and doing it on a Sabbath when... Why not wait? Yes. Wait for the, the next day, kind of thing. And so it's like Jesus, designed to provoke a certain misunderstanding of the law that that was already enshrined in the tradition surrounding it. Yeah, yeah and, and at the same time to reveal the true purpose of a Sabbath sort of thing. Mm. So yeah, significant yes. in, in, yeah, in yeah. so many ways. Um, and in a sense, according to the Jews' version of the law, um, mm. Jesus ought to die. You know. Um, if those um, laws carried legal weight, then the Jews could legitimately say, Jesus ought to die. Here it is, written by us. You know, you can't do this. Um, and all sorts, for all sorts of things, um, Jesus ought to die. Um, and yet, surely there's a deeper sense here as well. The Jews have Mosaic law. Um, Jesus has come to liberate his people, to... Um, set them free from sin and yet um at the very foundation of mosaic law is in order for atonement to be made um blood has to be shed it comes um at the expense of a, a soul you could translate the, the relevant passage there in um uh, yeah. in leviticus 17 isn't it um uh there, yeah, there yeah. is a, a, cost. a soul or a life yeah yeah. Right, yeah, there, there is a cost. And, and so at that kind of deeper level, um, for Jesus to accomplish what he's come to accomplish, there is, there is a need for him to, to die. Mm. Yeah, and it, the, the uh, multivalent character of John's records of Jesus' speech, I just find fascinating. You get it again and again, don't you? Um, yeah. Uh, and right from the beginning, like um, light has come into the world, um, uh, but men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. Um, the, the, the darkness has not overcome it or understood it. Or um, that John announces very early on that he's going to be playing with multiple layers of meaning. And I wonder if part of part of the difficulty that we have sometimes in in spotting these details at this point is that we're not attuned to look for that kind of multiplicity or multivalency. Right. We, we, we are, perhaps it's even a, a posture of defensiveness. A lot of our study of the gospels in the last, I guess, 150 years or so has been focused around a defense of their historicity against liberal scholars who wanted to challenge their historicity. Yeah. And so we've, we've spent a lot of time doing gospel harmonies, studies and trying to figure out what happened when and in what order yeah. and that's led us away from a detailed study of the, the nuanced differences between the gospels presentations of that material and it's in those differences that some of these features become most apparent 
So if we, yep, we're just yep. not used to looking for them. Um, right. So if we, if we see two slightly different formulations of the same saying in two gospels, for us, that's a problem to solve. Like, how is this historical? That's well, quite yep. easy to answer really, but, but rather than thinking, ah, oh, now this is a, a theologically significant difference or, or theologically significant feature of this particular gospel and of the other gospel and looking mm. at it in that way would unfold these details to us. Yeah. And, and it's a classic both and, isn't it? The, the right, trying to right. stick yeah. the two together into a historical scenario that's coherent is, is mm. fine. You know, it's nothing, it's not that we don't need to yeah. do that, but we don't need to right. stop there, I guess. And, um, Right, with that exactly, in mind, exactly. I just find a remarkable feature of, of this. So let's think again about this charge. We have a law. According to that law, he, out, he <clears> ought <throat> to die because he has made himself the son of God. Now, yeah. he, he has, <laughs> they are saying, laid claim to an authority he, he doesn't possess. Now, who, in fact, has laid claim to an authority that they right. don't possess? It is... Yeah. Precisely, his accusers. Um, yes, that they—he's the true shepherd. They are hired helpers, kind of thing, who have yeah, yeah. raised themselves above the Son of God. Mm. You, you could think of it, take it a different direction, couldn't you? Um, where is um, Jesus is going to be hung on a tree? Where, where is that mentioned? That is mentioned in mm. Deuteronomy twenty-one. Um, immediately um, after the passage where um, a rebellious son is to be yes. stoned to, to death. Now, who is yeah, the... to the gate and so... Yeah. Who is the rebellious son in this scenario? Not Jesus, right. um, but rather right. the Israel yes. whom in the start of Isaiah, um, God has said to, you know, you are rebellious children of mine. Or yeah, rebellious Jeremiah. sons is literally what he says, isn't it? Right, absolutely, yeah. yeah. So who <laughs> actually deserves to die this death that Jesus mm. is going to die? It is the Jews who are accusing him. Yes. So kind of if if we just sort of stop and, and press pause for a moment and think of just in this quick discussion, the aspects of death, of Jesus' death that we've kind of thought of, mm. it is a voluntary death. Um, yes. you know, it is one that Jesus dies knowing all that would happen. Um mm. It is substitutionary. Um, it is died on behalf of his people, the people whom he has chosen. Um, yeah. It is legal. You know, it is in some senses a lawbreaker's death. And mm. as the result of transgression of at least a law, um, and it is the death that others um, should die, namely his accusers, and that his disciples yeah. would die had he not um, <laughs> laid his life, and which he does not deserve to die, as Pilate has explicitly... Right. I mean, Himself just stop said, and yeah. pause. <laughs> yeah. Think about yeah. that. Try, try, and find try and find elements of the doctrine of substitutionary atonement that are not found there. It's, it's remarkable, isn't it? Right? It's utterly yeah. remarkable. And, and it strikes me that um, this, is, uh, this is the kind of... Uh, mm, it's a, it's a manifestation of exactly what you were talking about before, I think, where um, uh, the, the great blessing of this kind of close study of the scriptures is it draws out things which, I mean, to, to an attentive and thoughtful and godly reader of scripture, it's not a surprise that Jesus should be portrayed as uh, a suffering servant who dies in our place or the, the lamb that's pierced for our transgressions. But it might be gloriously and wonderfully different and encouraging and and also just enriching to the, I almost want to say the, the theological aesthetic quality of our faith. Mm. Yeah. To find it here. And, and by that, what I, I'm not meaning to make a highfalutin comment about anything. What I'm, what I'm wanting to say is that um, we, as real embodied emotional people, we are wrong to try and subsist on a single bare formulation of a single theological truth. So, so for us to just say, what I need to know is that Jesus died for my sins. 
Well, what I need to know is that God gave himself in the person of the son to suffer instead of me the punishment due to me for my rebellion against him, period. To say that that's what we need to know is like saying of your relationship with your wife, if you're married or your husband, you just need to know I love you. It's like, right. no, actually, that's not true. What, what you need to do if you're going to have a rich and deep relationship is to show that love in a multitude of different ways. And here, what the Lord is doing is showing his love for his people in all these different ways. He's inviting us to enrich our grasp of him and to grow into a, a, a full emotional and cognitive um, resonance with all that he has said and all that he's done in Christ for us. Yeah, absolutely, isn't it? And and those kind of um, aspects of what's going on here um there is all that richness and yet hmm. people have read this narrative <laughs> and yeah. have not thought that this is some crazy convoluted scenario that has to be dreamt up or that doesn't make yeah, yeah. historical sense sort of thing i mean if we if someone said to us okay stephen james find me a scenario where you can have aspects of a sacrifice and some cultic imagery and where you can have someone die being innocent. And yet we would come up with some hopelessly implausible, messy <laughs> story sort yeah, of thing, yeah, you know, yeah. um, because you can, and, and just sort of yeah, think about so other layers of, mm. of, of this. I mean, think for instance of, um, let's say creation, um, for a mm. second, you know, and the creation story of Genesis two and three, you know, we, we, yeah. we have, um, a garden planted in a in a barren land. We have Eve, whose name means life, come forth from uh, Adam's side. You know, after the fall, we have thorns come forth from the earth, and as a result of the fall, we have this sort of fiery um, sword kind of to guard the garden. Now, sort of think of some of the images that we've just thought about in these two chapters, and the way they come in reverse order of those events you know just as that ended yeah. with a fiery sword well here we start with some folk with torches and weapons coming out you know um, right. soon afterwards we have jesus adorned with a crown of thorns you know bearing thorns. creations yeah. curse later we're going to have water the water of life flow forth from jesus's yeah. side like eve and finally this kind of this garden bookended narrative is going to end with Jesus planted um, in yes. a, a new tomb, like the barren land in which mm. the Garden of Eden is. So yes. kind of, we have <laughs> a, a kind of a rewinding of the yeah, account yeah. Of, of, of the fall. Now, you don't mm. have to be a genius to work out that there might be some theological um, freight that that's no. <laughs> carrying. Yes. You know, and, and, just, and along the way, you have women standing by a tree talking right right absolutely yeah <laughs> yes yeah. so yeah. we we have this kind of undoing of the results mm. of the fool in narrative yeah. form yeah. and again that doesn't come across as convoluted that is just woven no. intricately and ingeniously into this historical yeah. come theological scenario that's wonderful. Listen, I'm conscious that um, we're past the time when you said you needed to, to be gone. I would happily talk oh, for goodness, a couple we hours, are. and I suspect yes. that our listeners, um, our listeners would probably be keen to keen to listen. But I'm going to call a stop because whoever you're going to meet next is going to be cross with me, and justly so for detaining you. But uh, <laughs> thank you again, James B. John. Um, um, give us a quick shout out to your Substack and Academia work. Uh, where, how can people find you? Just Google James B. John Substack. And yes, academia, I, is that right? I, I suppose so. Yep, and a few links probably there will come up to um, Tidal House, who are very kindly yeah. sponsoring me, and um, that is a, a great bunch of folk to be um, involved with. They are yes. um, believers who are committed to the church and wanting to serve the church mm. and make the things that they discover in scholarship um, available to the church. So it, it's a yeah. it's a great group and. There will also probably be a few podcasts to do with um, an outfit called Theopolis um, right. among there, who most of your uh, readers are, are yeah. viewers. Will be familiar with. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, that, well, if we, can induce, if we can induce you to provide uh, us with more opportunities to hear you over this side of the pond, James, that would be a blessing to us. I'm very grateful to you for joining us today. 
Um, the Lord bless you. And um, fantastic. Uh, Thank we you. We hope we yeah. I hope that, uh, that it's uh, not so many uh, months or much less years before we have another chance to talk um, some more about this kind of stuff. God bless you, James. That, Take that care. Be great. Thanks, Steve.